Okay, good luck. This is for Sunday. This week, Matos and Mase are combined. So it's long. Try to do it quickly. We open up where it says that Maisha spoke to the heads of the Shvatim and going into the laws about people that make vows. So Rashi questions, why is it saying specifically that Moshe spoke to the heads of the Shvatim? Why did he speak to the heads of the Shvatim? Isn't he speaking to Kal Yisrael? And Rashi says, well, he's teaching them first. He gives them honor. He teaches them first, and then he teaches Kal Yisrael. And the Rashi explains that actually this happens every single time. Whenever Moshe was taught something by Hashem, and he's teaching it to Kal Yisrael, he first teaches it to the leaders, the heads of the Shvatim, and then he teaches it to Kal Yisrael. So if this happens every single time, why is the Pasuk telling it to us here? In other words, if the Pasuk wants us to know this concept, why here? Because here we have a concept that has to do with being a leader. Because in this section, we're discussing nullifying vows. And a vow can be nullified by one leader, so to speak, by one expert. If you don't have one expert, three regular people together can nullify the vow. And then Rashi questions when he said, and said, well, maybe no. Maybe here it says that Moshe spoke to the heads of the Shvatim, and it doesn't say it anywhere else. So only here he first taught the law to the heads of the Shvatim. But Rashi says no, because we use the same term. This is like a Zereshava. Here Moshe said, Hashem. this is the word that Hashem commanded. And in a different section, concerning Shechting outside the Vesemek, Dezhakarban, which is forbidden, it also says Zahadavar. So just as here, Moshe first spoke to the leaders and then to the people, also there, Moshe first spoke to the leaders and then to the people. Now Zahadavar, on this concept Zahadavar, Rashi gives two explanations. One, we see here the superiority of Moshe's Nevuah, because generally Nevi'im are not as precise to say Zeh, this, they say koi, like this. But here Moshe is saying zeh, this. The second explanation Rashi gives is zehadavar is to minimize. Only this is the word. Meaning we're talking here about nullifying vows. A chacham nullifies with the word hatara. A husband nullifies with the word hafara. As we see based on the Pasuk where it's talking about matir neder or mefer neder. And if they switched it and the husband used the Chacham's word or the Chacham uses the husband's word, it doesn't work. Because Zehadavar, only this works exclusively. So we have in this section many different situations of different types of people nullifying vows. So in the first plus, the plus of Gimel, we speak about a man who makes a vow to prohibit something on himself and he cannot profane this. Whatever he vowed, he has to do. Karach explains the Nezer means person is saying this is like a koinam to me. A koinam means like a carbon. Meaning if you take an animal and make it a carbon, you can't use it. It's forbidden to me. So the person is saying this thing, whatever, let's say, I don't know, popcorn. Popcorn is like a koinam to me, meaning I forbid myself to eat popcorn the same way I can't use the carbon. Then Rashi says, what if a person does the opposite? In other words, to say, I forbid upon myself to eat popcorn, I forbid upon myself to eat cheese, I forbid upon myself to drink apple juice, okay, you can forbid whatever you want. But what is a person, can a person do it the other way? 
the person swear he's going to, for example, eat something that you're not allowed to eat? So the Chumash says no. Rashi explains, the Pasuk says, to prohibit something permissible you're allowed to do. You're not allowed to permit what's prohibited. Lo yachel devaros. Rashi explains the first yachel is like hilel, to make something profane. If he can't make his word profane, meaning he can't not keep it. Okay, so that was the first situation. The man makes a promise, he has to keep it. Second situation, Pesach Dalit. A woman makes such a nedra upon herself, she forbids something from herself when she's in the, her father's home in her youth. So Rashi clarifies when it says in her father's home, it doesn't mean physically she has to be in her father's home. It means she's under his jurisdiction, in her youth. What does youth mean? Rashi says youth means not a katana and not a bulgaris. A katana is someone under 12. A bulgaris is someone who's 12 and a half. So if you're a katana, generally speaking, you can't make a promise. You're too young to make a promise. If you're a bulgaris, you're already 12 and a half, your father's not your boss anymore. So it's not like he's the one that's going to determine if you can keep your promises or not. So at what point is she this na'ara? seems it's a very thin, thin slice of time, from 12 to 12 and a half. But actually, it's a little bigger than that, because our Fachamim say that when she's 11 already, though she's technically a katana, because she's under 12, but already here, we could check her and see. Meaning, at already 11, we say she might be understanding enough to truly make a promise. So if she understands the reality of her promise, the reality of the Abishter, and we'd say, fine, she made her promise. If she's 12, which means she's not a katana anymore, we don't have to cross-examine her. It, once she's a bas mitzvah, she knows what she's doing. So her father's jurisdiction over her is from when she's 11, where she is able to make a vow if we cross-examine, through 12 and a half, because once she's 12 and a half, she's a bogaris and she's independent. But for that year and a half, she's making a vow, but her father has to approve it. As explained in Pesach, hey, if her father hears this vow and he doesn't say anything, then it stands, meaning the father and later the husbands we're going to discuss, they have basically that day to, to, to say, no, I disapprove of this vow. So if her father hears, he made the vow Sunday morning, he hears and he doesn't say anything, he hears about it and doesn't say anything. By the time it's Monday, okay. It's her promise. She made it. She stuck with it. So the father heard and didn't prevent her. But in Pasuk Vav, what if her father restrained her? If her father restrained her on the day he heard it, then it's nullified. The vow does not exist. The father said no. Zerashi explains this word, hemia. Restrained her meaning, I might not understand what I mean. Meaning, I might think it means and he told her, based on the Pasuk, he told her to violate it. He said, you made this vow, violate it. That's not what restrained means, as Rashi explains. What it means is nullified, that he nullified it, meaning the vow no longer exists. Not the vow exists, but don't keep it, but the vow literally doesn't exist. He nullified it. And then the Pasuk concludes, and Hashem will forgive her because her father nullified it. So what do we mean the Hashem will forgive her? What's to forgive? She made a promise. Her father nullified it. What's to forgive? So we're hearing a very specific situation that she made the promise. It was nullified. 
Rosh here says the husband because he's actually following a different, I mean, whatever. He's, he's quoting from a different section of the Sifri discussing these laws with the husband. It was the same here, the husband and the father. She makes a vow. I'm not going to drink wine. Her father, if she's single and under his jurisdiction, or her husband, if he's married and under his jurisdiction, hears it and nullifies it. But she doesn't know he nullified it. And then she violated her vow. She thinks she has this vow. She drinks wine that she thinks he's not allowed to drink. Really, technically, he is allowed to drink. It says no, though. So here we're said, Hashem will forgive her. So it's a very strong point, Rashi's saying. Look at this lady. She didn't do anything wrong, technically, because her vow was annulled, but she didn't know that. And yet she needs forgiveness because she didn't know it was annulled. And the Pasuk says, don't worry, Hashem will forgive you. So from this, Rashi derives, wow, if this is true for her, call the Chaimah for everyone else, how much we are in need of Hashem's forgiveness. Because Zion talks about a different situation. Pasuk said, if she is to a man, and then she made this vow. Iraqi questions, what does it mean to a man? Meaning, this is Pasuk Zion. If you look ahead in Pasuk Yud Aleph, you say very clearly, she's married. And the whole situation of a woman married. So if later we're talking about a woman married, what does this mean a woman to a man? So it means someone who's engaged. So someone who's engaged has actually a double jurisdiction over her. She's engaged, which means in a sense, legally, she's already married and therefore under her husband's jurisdiction. But she's not completely married. She's engaged, which means she's still under her father's jurisdiction. So such a woman needs both people to annul her vow. If she made a vow, her engaged fiancé, her, her future husband, and her father, both of them have to annul it. If only one annuls it, the vow still stands. If one of them said, yes, I agree, that's a fine vow to keep, then forget it. She, she has to keep the vow. Udinareha um, Aleha. So if she made the vow, this situation is when she made the vow, but nobody heard it. So her husband, future husband and father, didn't agree to the vow, didn't hear it. They didn't annul the vow. They didn't hear it. And then her husband hears about it, her future husband, which I hear about someone who's engaged. And he's silent on the day he hears about it. Well, again, if he's silent when he hears about it, that means he's agreeing if a whole day goes by. So the husband or father doesn't have to say, yes, I agree to your vow. If they know about it and don't negate it for a whole day, that means they're affirming it. So this idea of her husband hearing about it, Rashi says, so here we see that if the husband endorses it, it stands. Meaning, we're only talking about the husband. What about the father? What doesn't make a difference? Either one of them, if either one of them approve the vow, and by hearing and not negating, that means you approve, then the vow stands, because you need both to nullify it, but only one to approve it. Then we have a different situation. The same woman, but on the day her husband, her future husband hears, he nullifies it. He annuls the vow, and again, the public says, Hashem will forgive her. So here Rashi says that here we see, again, Rashi says, well, what about, this only says the husband, what about the father? So Rashi is saying, no, here we have joint jurisdiction, meaning, as we said before, if she is engaged and not yet married, 
both the father and husband have to annul, for it to be annulled, and for it to spend and not have the option of being annulled, either one of them could affirm it, and then it's affirmed. We don't need both to affirm it, but we need both to annul it. Pasuk 10, if a woman's a widow or divorce, she doesn't have anyone to annul it. But she's the same situation like a man. She's self, you know, self-jurisdicting here. Um, and Rashi clarifies, since this person is not under her father's jurisdiction, because she was married, so she's already like an independent woman, and she's not under her husband's because she's a widow or divorcee, so no one's around to annul it, but that only applies if she was already married. But if she's a, so to speak, widow from an engaged status, means she was engaged to a man and then he died, in a sense she's a widow, but since she was never married, she does go back then to her father's jurisdiction. Possibly Sorry, Yud Olive. Yud Olive is about a woman who is married then. And now you're married, you have only one person here, it's just the husband because you're married. So this married woman made some oath and Pasuk her husband heard it and he was silent, he didn't prevent it, then it stands. And Rashi clarifies, Pasuk Aleph, we're here talking about a married woman. Pasuk Gimel, but if her husband annuls it on the day he hears it, then it doesn't stand because he annulled it. Pasuk so every vow her husband can allow it to stand, or her husband can annul it. So what are we gaining by this? Don't we already know this? So here it's clarified. It says, Every vow of self-denial, meaning what vows can the husband annul? A vow of self-denial. Like a person says, I'm not going to eat, I'm not going to drink. As Rashi says, it's, it's defined in the Dharm. But there are some vows that he doesn't have the power to annul. It depends what vows we're talking about. Only vows of self-denial can he annul. And if he's quiet, from one day to the next, then it stands. Rashi says, what does mean? Until now, when we said that if a day goes by and he doesn't annul it, that means he's affirming it, one could think a day means 24 hours. So miyom yom teaches us that it's actually until nightfall, meaning like from day to day is from the day he heard to the beginning of the next day, which is nightfall. So if he heard at 5 o'clock and he is at 8, he has three hours to decide. And if he doesn't do anything, he's just passive, that means he affirms it. And then the Pasuk says, Tessayin, if he annuls them, after having heard them, he has to bear her transgression. Transgression, meaning, if he heard his wife make a shvua, and he endorsed it, he said, yes, I approve. And then he changed his mind the same day. Five minutes later, he said, no, 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 I'm annulling it. He has to take her place. He has to take her place, meaning, in terms of the transgression. What would the transgression be? He, she vowed, I'm not going to drink wine. He says, yeah, that's a great idea. And he says, no, that's a crazy idea. It's a stupid idea. I, I don't let. So she thinks, okay, my husband annulled my vow. It doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't stand. So she drinks wine. She doesn't know that since he said, I agree, he doesn't have the authority to later change his mind. And therefore, when she's drinking wine, she's actually sinning. She's going against her vow, but she doesn't know. 
It's your husband's fault. So therefore, Rashi's saying, we learn from here that if you cause another person to sin, you're punished in his place. So her husband's the one that messed her up here because his wishy-washing this, yes, I agree, no, I disagree, led her to sin, so it's really spiritually his problem. And these are all these laws. And that would have ended it if the parshas aren't combined, but they are. So we go on to Parak Lamed Aleph, the next parak, which goes to a totally different issue, which is the war against Midian. So try to do this very quickly. So Hashem says, let's take the revenge of Neisrael on the Midianim, and then afterwards, Moshe, you can die. So Rashi questions, why are we taking this war? We're taking this war because Mayav, with some help from Midian, followed Bilam's advice and had their girls go and seduce the Jewish men and lead them to relationships and lead them to Vajazar, and 24,000 Jews died in the plague of Hashem because of this. So now that it's done and over and Pinchas stopped it, we, want it, we have to take revenge. But why are we taking revenge against Midian and not Mayav when the main players were Mayav? Mayav was really the one that led this plot, and Midian just sort of joined in with some women. So Rashi gives two reasons. One reason is because Mayav was scared. They truly thought that the Yidin were going to come conquer them. And therefore, we understand a bit why they did it. But Midian, well, of course, we weren't, we weren't anywhere near attacking Midian's land. So they, they just some joined the war that had nothing to do with them. So that's why they're more guilty. Second answer Rashi gives is there's two very special converts that are going to come, one from Moab and then also throwing in here from Amon. Rus came from Moab. Rus, the ancestor of David. Naama, the wife of Shlomo and the mother of Rehavim, came from Amon. So for these two special women, these two special converts, I'm not going to start up with Mayav and with their neighboring like sister nation, Amon. So Moshe tells us to the people, fortify yourself for war against Midian to take the revenge of Hashem with Midian. Why does it have to say Moshe spoke? I mean, we, we, we know Moshe's going to listen to Hashem. So Rashi comments, we're saying this to say, look here, Hashem said, they're going to fight the war against Midian, and then you're going to die. And even though he understood his death was like contingent in them doing this, he did it right away with joy to fulfill Hashem's word. Hechaltu, Uncle explains it means to arm yourself. Men, I mean, obviously men. But I'd say men. Rashi says it means tzaddikim. To take the revenge of Hashem. Why are we saying the revenge of Hashem? Midian caused the Jews to sin. Midian started up with the Jews. But Hashem and the Jews are joined. If you fight up, if you start up with the Jewish people, you're starting up with Hashem. And the Pasuk says 1,000 people per Shevet. Every Shevet is giving 1,000 people. And Rashi says this includes the tribe of Levi, very unusually enough. In other words, why does it emphasize all, sorry, Rashi is on the word L'chol Matos Yisrael, of all the tribes. Why are we emphasizing all the tribes? Because unusually enough, even Levi was counted. Um, the question questioned this because later you see when they actually went to war, there were 12,000 men. If Levi's counted, there's 13 tribes. There should have been 13,000 men. And some explained that Ephraim and Minas in this situation were pulled together as one tribe, the tribe of Yosef, to create the 12 and not the 13. Or it's not that Levi went to fight, but a 1,000 of them were chosen to be like the daveners, to be the spiritual people that their Hidkush should help the army, but not literally fighting. And they were handed over 
these 12,000 people. Why does it mean they were handed over? Rashi explains they didn't want to go because they heard that Moshe was going to die afterwards. So they had to be literally handed over. And in Pasuk Vav, so the, the 12,000 go, led by Pinchas ben Elazar HaKayin. So Rashi questions this. Well, first Rashi says, why are we saying them and Pinchas? To show Pinchas was equal to all of them. And then Rashi questions, wait, why did Pinchas go? He's not the Kayin God, though Elazar is. So Rashi gives three reasons. One reason is because Pinchas began the mitzvah, he killed Cosby, so he should finish it with this war. Two is he's avenging his maternal forefather, Yosef, because Yosef was sold by the Midianim, so he's fighting the Midianim. And three is because he was the Kohen anointed for warfare. There was always one Kohen who was supposed to lead them in warfare, and that was Pinchas. That's why he went. And it says he took the clay hakodesh, the sacred vessels. He took the ark, the aron, and the tzitz, the headplate. Why did he do this? Because Bilam went with the Midianite kings, and he caused them to fly through his sorcery. So Bilam and the kings are flying. So when Pinchas turned to them with this tzitz, which has Hashem's name on it, they fell, which is how the kings and Bilam were killed. In his hands, in his possession. And it says that we have here the five kings of Midian that are killed and Bilam ben Ba'ar. Why does the Pesach have to tell me the five kings when I could count the names are written here and see they're five? To show us that they all equally conspired against the Jewish people. They were punished equally. And then Rashi questions, why was Bilam there? Because he had given them this advice. He was like, oh, hey, I gave you my advice and you listened and 24,000 Jews died. So therefore, Hashem made sure that he would be here now to get his due measure and be killed by this war. It says they killed the five kings and Bilam by sword. Why does it say he killed them by sword? Because Goyim fight with a sword. Yidim fight with their mouth. We daven. But Bilam took our tool. He cursed with his mouth and gave this evil plan with his mouth. So we took his tool and we used a sword to kill them. Okay, it's really, really over the time. Just try to finish this very quickly. So... They set all their cities and palaces on fire. Zerashi gives two comments on Tiro, some of their palaces. Either the palaces are for their monks, or the palaces are for their ministers. And then the next passage says the soldiers take all the booty of the men and all the livestock. So it shows us that they were so righteous that everything they took it's going to say they took all this and they brought it to Moshe and Elizabeth Kohen. So we see they're so righteous that we trust them completely. We know they didn't try to, like, the soldiers, these are soldiers, they didn't try to hide anything away for themselves. So the Pesach here uses the word shalal. And it, the Rashi explains shalal specifically means movable clothing and ornaments, as versus buzz which means things that's not ornamental. And why do, we, why do we make this comment? Because the shalal they turned over, meaning all the ornamental gold and silver they gave over to Moshe. But that was not ornamental. That was just the buzz, the plunder they kept for themselves. Malkoch, what's Malkoch? Rashi explains it's all the people and the animals that they captured. Sometimes Malkoch doesn't mean people and animals. It could mean just animals. If we have another word, captives, which would mean people. 
So if it would say the captives and the makoch, captives will be men and makoch will be animals. But if we don't have two words, like in our situation here, we just have makoch, it means the animals and the people as well. And that's it.